This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Stranger Than Fiction, where I share true crime cases that inspired Hollywood films. In this episode, the life and tragic death of a young socialite in the 1930s inspires a novel and then an Academy Award-winning movie starring Elizabeth Taylor. But Star Faithful's life was far from the glamorous treatment it would receive on the big screen. Instead, it was a tale of abuse, exploitation, and pain from the time she was a child until the beautiful young woman's body was found discarded on the New Jersey shore. This is the story of Star Faithful and Butterfield 8. The movie Butterfield 8 opens with Elizabeth Taylor playing Gloria Wandress, waking up in bed in a penthouse apartment in New York City. The young actress was just 28 years old at the time Butterfield 8 was filmed. The movie's first scene shows her tousled, her hair a mess, lying in rumpled sheets. But there's no mistaking that she's still gorgeous. Her character, Gloria, finds herself alone after having spent the night with a wealthy man named Weston Liggett. She calls out to him, but he's gone. Gloria then discovers an envelope and a note he's left for her on the dresser. Is $250 enough? The message attached to the envelope stuffed with cash reads. Gloria is incensed. She's no call girl, and she angrily casts aside the bills before scrawling a message in lipstick on a mirror. No sale, it reads. She discovers the dress she'd worn the night before, lying on the floor, torn beyond repair. Gloria rummages through the bedroom closet, first settling on a tasteful but elegant wool coat to cover herself for the trip home. But as an act of revenge for the perceived insult, she instead removes a mink coat from the closet and dons it before taking her leave. The coat belongs to Liggett's wife, Emily, who has been staying at her mother's country home. Her husband, Weston, a once-promising attorney, hails from a working-class family, but upon marrying Emily, now lives the life of wealth and ease. At her family's urging, Liggett has left his law firm and taken a son-in-law job at his father-in-law's chemical company. He's bored and unfulfilled, whining to his wife and friends how he serves no purpose. Instead of finding a way to make his mark at the company or in some other way, Liggett spends his considerable salary drinking and whining and dining other women. Gloria returns to her mother's Upper East Side apartment, where she still lives, but not before stopping off at the apartment of her lifelong friend, Steve Carpenter. She flirts and teases Steve, who scolds her for wasting her time and talents, hopping from one man to another. Gloria, we will learn, has quite a reputation around town, and we hear several people ridiculing and insulting her because of this throughout the film. She leaves the mink coat with Steve, and he arranges to have his girlfriend, Norma, bring over a suit that she can wear home. Gloria does not want her mother to see her arrive home from her night out, half-dressed. At home, she calls her phone exchange, Butterfield 8, to hear her messages. The modeling agency she works for has booked her at three different bistros that evening. She's been hired to be seen and photographed in a dress that has been sent over by the agency. She also speaks to Liggett, who explains that he was not suggesting anything about her character by leaving her the cash, 
He simply felt bad for having torn her dress and wanted to pay for a replacement. She invites him to meet up with her that evening while she is out on her modeling assignment. Her job is basically to drink and flirt with men at various nightclubs slash restaurants while being photographed in the clothes the agency provides. It's a weird gig, and I can see why some believe she's a high-priced call girl. Gloria, it is implied, is also considered promiscuous for the time in which Butterfield 8 was filmed. Men in the bar make crude comments about her reputation, which is overheard by Liggett. Even so, Liggett becomes obsessed with Gloria, and although she is skeptical at first, eventually falls in love with him. Without giving away the whole movie, I'll just tell you that their romance unravels due to various complications. Gloria's past, Liggett's jealousy, and of course, the fact that he's a married man. The ending, of course, is tragic, even if somewhat predictable. The screenplay for Butterfield 8 was based on a 1935 novel of the same title and written by John O'Hara. O'Hara was not involved in the writing of the screenplay, and it only very loosely adheres to his original novel, which he based on the life and tragic death of Star Wyman Faithful. Marion Star Wyman was born on January 27, 1906. Her mother, Helen Pierce McGregor, was born into a wealthy and influential Massachusetts family. She would marry Frank Wyman II, an investment banker. But before their wedding, Marion's father lost his fortune, so she brought no money into their marriage. The Wymans moved to Montclair, New Jersey the year following Star's birth. When Star was five years old, her sister Sylvia was born. Star was described as a bright, outgoing child. She attended an exclusive boarding school in Lowell, Massachusetts. Star grew into a beautiful young lady, but she was never comfortable in her own skin, it seemed. As a young girl, she preferred to wear baggy boyish clothes to hide her figure. Star was bright, but didn't graduate high school, dropping out just weeks before her senior year ended. That same year, her parents divorced. A year later, her mother remarried. Stanley Faithful was a self-employed investor and entrepreneur. However, he wasn't a successful one. He failed at numerous investments, and it seemed that the only earnings he did bring in was in the form of legal settlements. Stanley Faithful had a history of filing lawsuits to obtain money. Starr was struggling during her teen years. She didn't appear to have any set goals for her education or future, and it would be easy to chalk that up to all the upheaval that was occurring in her family the divorce of her parents, the addition of a new stepfather, and soon a move from Montclair to Orange, New Jersey, after her mother's remarriage. But there was a secret Star had been harboring for some time, something she would not reveal until she was 19. And that was that a close family member had been sexually molesting her since she was 11 years old. Star's mother, Helen, had a cousin named Martha Phillips. Martha married Andrew James Peters, a Harvard University graduate who would make a name for himself in government. Peters served in both the Massachusetts State Congress and Senate before becoming a United States congressman and then the assistant secretary of the Treasury in Woodrow Wilson's administration. He had also served as the mayor of Boston from 1918 to 1922. Star, her mother, and her sister spent summers with the Peters as invited guests in their home. The Peters also provided financially for Helen and her daughters. Star's boarding school tuition had been covered by Andrew Peters. Helen and the girls were also given gifts and money by Peters. 
While Starr was living at the boarding school in Massachusetts, her benefactor, Andrew Peters, began showing up and taking Starr out of school for the day. Sometimes he would treat her to a shopping trip or out for lunch, but later, these became spur-of-the-moment vacations for the two of them. Starr would stay in the same hotel room with Andrew Peters. When Starr was 11, Peters began sexually molesting her. By the time she reached her early teens, Starr was experiencing serious emotional issues. She was extremely self-conscious about her body as she hit puberty. She also began performing poorly in school. And she became sexually promiscuous in high school. It was this behavior, viewed as a scandal in that place and time, that landed her in the Channing Sanitarium, where she underwent psychiatric treatment. Starr continued to drift as she reached young adulthood. It was the 1920s, and liquor was plentiful. The Faithfuls had moved from New Jersey after Stanley suffered another financial loss, losing their home to creditors. Now living in New York City's Greenwich Village, Starr had plenty of bars and clubs nearby in which to find drinking companions, most of them men. At the age of 19, Starr, her life reeling out of control, finally revealed that she had been sexually abused by Andrew Peters since the age of 11. She had returned from a weekend at a hotel with Peters when she was confronted by her mother, who scolded Starr about her, quote, wayward lifestyle. Starr finally confessed the awful truth. Peters had groomed her when she was still a child, reading to her from a book of sex instructions and then drugging her with ether before raping her. He continued to have sex with Starr throughout her teen years. Immediately upon hearing this, Starr's mother and stepfather retained an attorney who promptly contacted Peters to negotiate a settlement. The faithfuls knew that Peter had a lot to lose if this information was made public. His reputation would be ruined and his political career ended, and they used this to their advantage. In exchange for Starr's silence about the abuse, the faithfuls received $25,000, or over $350,000 in today's dollars. It was supposed to be a one-time payment to provide for Starr's medical care and, quote, rehabilitation, but the faithfuls received more large payments over the next few years. It is alleged that in total, they may have received over $80,000, or $1.1 million today. This would be a clear-cut case of extortion on the part of Helen and Stanley Faithful, in my opinion. Now flush with cash, the Faithfuls decided the best thing for their daughter was to get away from New York. She was booked on a series of cruises, quote, for her health, spending time in the Mediterranean, the West Indies, and sailing no less than five times to the UK. Starr spent a considerable amount of time in London in her early 20s. The only other help the Faithfuls provided for Starr was to hire 44-year-old Edwin Megergie, a wildlife painter, to be Starr's, quote, sex tutor. Megergie was supposed to teach Starr, who'd spent almost a decade being abused by an older male relative, how to have, quote, normal sexual relations. Really, that's just odd, and probably not helpful. Spending so much time away from home and on ships, Starr began socializing mostly with the ship's officers and crew members, she seemed to fancy herself in love with one officer or another before they either sailed off to another port, leaving her behind, or ending the relationship in some other way. Starr continued to be used and discarded by a series of older men. In New York, Starr lived the life of a party girl, spending the majority of her time drinking and using drugs. She frequented bars and nightclubs several times per week. 
She had several close calls overdosing on sleeping pills or other drugs. She was hospitalized several times, spending days at a time in mental wards when her behavior or drinking grew out of control and dangerous. Star, having experienced almost a decade of sexual abuse, was using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain, shame, and rage she was feeling. Her family was living almost exclusively off the money provided by her abuser. It was a well-known fact that Star had become suicidal several times and began taking even more risks with her health and well-being while drunk or on drugs. In the spring of 1931, Star was found passed out and naked in a New York hotel room. She'd gone to the hotel with a man she didn't know. He'd beaten her and left her unconscious in the room. She was transferred to Bellevue Hospital and committed to the psych ward once more. In late May 1931, just a few weeks after being released from Bellevue, Star Faithful attended a party. She was a regular at the Chelsea Piers, located just a couple miles north from her home. Star spent a considerable amount of time aboard ships during her travels and had become familiar with many of the ship's officers and staff. She often attended the Bon Voyage parties at the pier, the first big party on board the ship before it departed for sea. The public was welcome aboard to partake of the festivities. They were just required to disembark before the ship set sail unless they had a ticket. On May 29th, Starr attended a Bon Voyage party on the Cunard Ocean Liner, the RMS Franconia. She attended not just for the free-flowing booze, but also because there was someone special she wanted to see. Dr. George Jameson Carr was the ship's doctor, and Starr was infatuated with him. More than that, she believed herself to be in love with him, describing him as the love of her life. But Dr. Carr didn't share the same ardor. They may have had a fling in the past, but now Starr had become to Carr simply a nuisance. She attended the party in order to see him, but when he rebuffed her advances, she set about to get very drunk. Starr did not leave the ship before it shoved off from the dock. When it was discovered that she did not have a ticket, she was told she would be taken back to shore. Starr refused to cooperate. Ship security officers were called to forcefully remove her, and she was placed into a tugboat and returned to the pier. On the way, she continued to make a scene shouting, Just kill me! Throw me overboard! She would later claim she had not tried to stow away. She had just drank too much and had been unable to leave. The following weekend, on Friday, June 5th, Starr left her family's apartment at 12 St. Luke's Place in Greenwich Village at 9.30 a.m. She told her mother and sister she was off to get her hair done. She was wearing a silk dress, a coat, a hat, and had taken her purse, which contained $3. At 11.30 a.m., she was seen by a news vendor purchasing a paper at the 9th Street subway station. An hour and a half later, she got into a cab with a man wearing a Cunard line uniform. She called him Brucie. The cabbie dropped the man at Chelsea Piers and overheard Starr tell him that she'd see him at the wharf at 4 p.m. Brucie told her not to return. The cabbie then took Starr back to her apartment. Her family would later report that Starr did not return to the apartment after leaving that morning. The cabbie confirmed that he had not actually seen her enter the building. At 2 p.m., less than an hour later, Starr returned to the pier. 
the same cabbie was flagged down by Brucie at the pier. He again put Star into a cab. The cabbie observed that Star was now intoxicated. The man told him to take Star home and not to return her to the pier again. He began driving the two miles back to St. Luke's place with Star, but she asked him to pull the cab over and let her out. She said she only had 10 cents and couldn't afford the full fare back to Greenwich Village. When she got out of the taxi, he saw her walking back in the direction of the pier. About an hour later, witnesses reported seeing Star aboard the RMS Mauritania, another Cunard ship. She left before it departed at 5 p.m. She next boarded the RMS Carmania. There she connected with another gentleman friend, Dr. Charles Roberts. Dr. Roberts would later report that Star was in his company from 5.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. Just after 10, he gave her cab fare, and she got into a taxi near Pier 56. She told him she was going to attend another party, this one on board the Ile de France. A police officer later confirmed this, as he'd witnessed Star get into the cab around the same time. There were other possible sightings of Star late Friday evening or in the wee hours of Saturday morning. She may have been seen with a man at Taps Hotel in Island Park, near Long Beach. It was reported that she'd possibly been in an argument with her companion and then left with another man. This sighting was said to be significant because Taps was a hotel popular with local mobsters and gangsters, including Dutch Schultz. By Saturday evening, when Star didn't return home, her family grew concerned. Her stepfather, Stanley Faithful, reported her missing to the police. The next day, before there was yet any word from Star, Helen and Stanley Faithful sent a letter to Andrew Peters to inform him that Star was missing and also to ask him for more money. Early in the morning of Monday, June 8, 1931, a man walking along the shore in Long Beach, New York, discovered the body of Star Faithful. She was still wearing the silk dress she'd last been seen in before leaving her apartment the previous Friday morning. The body was still clad in silk stockings, but no undergarments, and her coat, hat, and shoes were also missing. While her dress and even her newly manicured nails appeared to have little damage, her body was covered in bruises. The medical examiner would state in his report that they had been inflicted by another person. Starr's body was autopsied, and the cause of death was listed as drowning. Along with water, her lungs contained a large amount of sand. This indicated that she most probably drowned in shallow water, near where she was found, not in deep sea water and then the body carried by waves onto the shore. Investigators classified Starr's death as a homicide. They believed she had been beaten and her head held underwater until she drowned. There would be conflicting reports about the condition of the body. The first medical examiner would conclude that Starr had been raped before being killed. Another expert would say that although there was indication that she'd had sexual intercourse not too long before her death, he did not see injuries consistent with the rape. The condition of her clothing and stockings were described as still intact and undamaged. The time of death was also disputed, with one examiner reporting the body had been in the water for at least 48 hours. Still, another expert determined the body to have been submerged for less than 10 hours, making the time of death sometime late Sunday night. The stomach contents revealed that Star had eaten a meal of meat, potatoes, and mushrooms just three to four hours before she died. But her last known companion, Dr. Roberts, said that he and Star had eaten a light meal about 8 p.m. on Friday, lending credence to the later time of death. 
As well, the autopsy concluded that she had not ingested alcohol for about 36 hours before her death. Several witnesses saw Starr drinking and intoxicated on Friday evening. However, her liver did contain a large amount of the barbiturate Veronal, a sedative she was known to use often. It was not enough to kill her, the ME said, but it would have, quote, put her in a stupor, unquote. After reviewing all the evidence, investigators changed their opinion of the cause of death from homicide to either suicide or accidental drowning. They believed that Starr had either jumped or fallen from a ship. But Starr's mother and stepfather insisted that their daughter had been murdered, and Stanley Faithful was not shy about who was most likely responsible. Andrew J. Peters. At first, Stanley Faithful did not mention Andrew Peters by name as the person with the most to gain from Starr's death. However, he did go to the press to let them know that his stepdaughter's death was most certainly a murder in his opinion. He told them that Starr had been, quote, corrupted by an older wealthy friend who'd paid a settlement to keep his name out of the papers, unquote. Perhaps Faithful thought that Peters would throw some more money his way to get him to stop talking to reporters. Or maybe Stanley Faithful was grieving and angry and wanted Peters ruined for what he'd done to Starr. Although I kind of doubt this, and I'll share why later. In either case, loose lips sink ships, and what Faithful blabbed to the press was enough information for investigators to figure out the person he was talking about was Andrew J. Peters. Peters, at that time, was working for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidential campaign. But Helen and Stanley Faithful were pointing the finger so hard at Peters that they brought suspicion upon themselves. Investigators thought Starr's parents' accusations were motivated by money. The Faithfuls wanted Peters investigated for Starr's murder, and they possibly believed that if he was convicted of the crime, they could sue his estate for even more money. The Faithfuls had also been uncooperative with authorities in the initial investigation. The story, of course, made a big splash in the newspapers. A high-profile politician, a sordid tale of sexual abuse, a beautiful young flapper with a party girl image, all wrapped up in a murder mystery, was just the type of story that sold papers. It was also reported that the Faithfuls had been paid off by Starr's abuser, and they appeared to have no other source of income. Andrew Peters had his lawyer issue a statement denying that he'd ever had, quote, improper relations with Starr. He said he hadn't even seen the Faithfuls in years. But another piece of evidence that was discovered would call this claim into question. A grand jury was convened to look at all the evidence and conclude whether there was enough information to classify Starr's death as a homicide. While gathering evidence to bring before the grand jury, a search of the Faithful's apartment was conducted. In her bedroom, Starr's diary was found. The journal, Starr called her memory book, laid out explicit details of sexual relationships she'd had with 19 men, each identified by their initials only. One of these men was identified as A.J.P., a coincidence or proof that Andrew J. Peters continued to have a sexual relationship with Starr even after he'd paid her family hush money. Of course, investigators as well as the public believed the latter was true. Portions of Starr's diary was printed in the papers. Other portions were considered to be too explicit for print. Once Peters was excoriated in the press and public opinion, he suffered a nervous breakdown. The grand jury heard testimony from investigators about Starr's last hours. 
They had searched for the man identified only as Brucey by the cab driver. They even investigated a Chicago gangster by the name of Ernest Blue, a.k.a. Richard Bruce, but determined he was not the mysterious Brucey that Starr had met at the pier. Investigators were finally able to solve the mystery when they found an acquaintance of Starr's named David Bruce Blue. Blue, located in London, confirmed that he had been with Starr on the Mauritania on June 5th. Starr's death was investigated as a homicide until December of 1931, but there wasn't enough evidence to conclude a theory of murder. Most were under the opinion that Starr had died as the result of a suicide or accident, with suicide thought to be the most plausible theory. Dr. Carr, the ship's doctor whom Starr was infatuated with, had set sail for London just after his last traumatic encounter with Starr, when she had to be returned to the shore in a tugboat. When his ship arrived there, he had three letters waiting for him from Starr. They were dated May 30th, June 2nd, and June 3rd. Upon hearing about Starr's death, he returned to the U.S. and turned the letters over to the police. The letters were also published in the New York Times on June 22nd and 24th. The first letter from Starr, dated May 30th, read, I'm going to end my worthless, disorderly bore of an existence before I ruin anyone else's life as well. I certainly have made a sordid, futureless mess of it all. I hate everything so. Life is horrible. I have, strangely enough, had more of a feeling of peace now that I know it will soon be over. Unquote. While the tone of this missive seems to be a final suicide declaration, Starr signed off by inviting Carr to come visit her next time he was in New York. But the letter dated on June 4th, the day before she disappeared, sounds more frantic and hopeless. Starr tells Carr she cannot live without him, and it is her intent to kill herself. She goes on to say she only dreads the idea that she might be stopped or not succeed in this plan. Quote, If I don't watch out, I'll wake up in a psychopathic ward but I intend to watch out and accomplish my end this time, she writes. She outlines how she plans to spend her last hours, quote, having one delicious meal, hearing some good music, drinking, enjoying a last cigarette, and encouraging men who flirt with me on the street. I don't care who they are, she concludes. The most likely scenario it was concluded by those who subscribed to the suicide theory was that Starr stowed away on board a ship, possibly the Ile de France, took a large dose of the sedative and jumped overboard as the ship passed by Long Beach late Friday evening or very early Saturday morning. The New York Times article concluded that the letters to Dr. Carr, quote, seemed to remove all doubt that the girl ended her own life, unquote. The accident theory was similar, except it painted the picture of Starr taking too much of the sedative, becoming unsteady, and falling overboard accidentally. Some argued that Starr could have not taken all the actions necessary to end her own life under the influence of such a high dosage of barbiturates as were found in her system. Stanley Faithful kept his name in the papers as he continued to insist that Andrew J. Peters had hired men to kill Starr. When investigators had to conclude that her death was most likely a suicide, Faithful told reporters that the police had been silenced by Peter's powerful political connections. But the investigation into Starr's death was, for all intents and purposes, closed by the end of October. In December, an inquest into Starr Faithful's death was held in front of the grand jury. At the end, they reached no conclusion as to the manner of her death. 
Starr's death remained a mystery in the minds of some for many years afterwards. Several books have been written about the case, with each writer reaching various conclusions. Author Jay Nash was the first to dispute if Starr had ever boarded the Ile de France at all. There was no evidence that she had ever been on board, he points out. No witnesses came forward to report seeing her. It was only on the word of Dr. Roberts, who said Starr told them that's where she was going next. But it's possible that she never made it that far. In the 1990 book, The Passing of Star Faithful, author Jonathan Goodman claims that the Ile de France set sail on the night of June 5th at 10 p.m. Star had been with Dr. Roberts until after 10 p.m., making it impossible for her to have attended a party on board the ship that night. Roberts also said that Star had no money or drugs with her when she left him that night. He'd given her the cab fare. But at some point after leaving Carr, Star was able to eat a large meal of meat and potatoes. The alcohol she'd consumed on Friday, multiple witnesses said she was quite intoxicated on Friday night, had also passed out of her system by the time of her death. So does this mean she had been alive for at least another day before her death, and with another companion or companions? From this information, another theory has emerged over the years. There was some information that Long Island mobsters found out about Andrew Peters' inappropriate relationship with Starr, and it's rumored that they also learned that the Faithfuls had profited by way of a settlement they'd received from Peters to keep quiet. Some reported that these mobsters wanted to use Starr to extort Peters themselves. When they found her alone at the pier and intoxicated, the theory goes, they were able to talk her into coming with them, perhaps inviting her for a meal or drinks. Her letter to Dr. Carr mentions encouraging men who flirt with her on the street, no matter who they were. She also says she wants to spend her remaining time having drinks and a good meal. Perhaps Starr spent the last 24 to 36 hours before her death having a good time. I certainly hope so. But then, maybe, the tone shifted, when the men began leaning on her to provide information they could use to blackmail Peters. Did she refuse? When she could not be persuaded, did they beat her, causing the bruises on her body? Was she knocked unconscious and then dumped into the water? Another variation on this theory is that Starr didn't meet up with gangsters, but just a random man or men, perhaps sailors, that night at the pier. She may have spent some time having drinks, perhaps boarding another ship where she ate her last meal, before going to the beach with her dinner companion. Did she enjoy flirting with the man, but when he tried to have sex with her on the beach, did she refuse? Is that when she was beaten and her head held underwater until she drowned? Of the murder theories, this one, because it's the most straightforward, seems the most plausible to me. Starr's death was tragic, no matter which theory you believe, but her life was sufficiently heartbreaking even before her sad death. The little girl who loved flowers, liked to draw, and had lots of imaginary friends, according to her family, had her childhood cut short by a sexual predator. She spent the rest of her short life alternately trying to find love and acceptance from men. Her biological father is not mentioned as a presence in her life after her parents' divorce and being exploited by them. Her self-destructive behavior was a form of punishment she inflicted upon herself, never being told that the shame and blame belonged only to Peters. Instead, she remained trapped in an exploitive relationship with Andrew Peters, which was made even more complicated when her family took money from him on the condition that Starr never revealed the abuse. She was used as a pawn, not only by Peters, but by her own family. Even when she was missing... They immediately went to Peters to extort more money. Did they already believe Starr was dead? Were they afraid that her confirmed death would end the payments from Peters? 
While they were railing to the press about Star's death, they never considered that the poor girl might have taken her own life, instead wanting to hold Peters responsible even when there was no proof she was murdered or that he was directly involved in her death. But I think their outrage was all an act. The evidence for them truly caring for their daughter was scant. As soon as they received the first hush money installment, they sent her away. She was sent on one cruise after another, where she desperately searched for love and acceptance in the only way she knew how. Starr's understanding of love and family had been warped by Andrew Peters when she was just a child, and her desperate need to feel special and loved led her to be victimized over and over by men. Lest you think I'm judging Starr's family too harshly, I'll describe to you their callous behavior after her death. 19-year-old Sylvia Faithful was asked by reporters to express her feelings about the loss of her sister Star. Sylvia was quoted as saying, I'm not sorry Star's dead. She's happier. Everyone is happier. End quote. Later, Sylvia would also use the details of her sister's death as part of a Broadway show she co-produced. Also, according to Harold Schechter's book, Ripped from the Headlines, where I first read about this case, Star Faithful's family didn't even bother to provide a proper burial or memorial for their daughter. Quote, exactly one year after her body washed up on the beach, Star Faithful's cremated ashes, packaged in a pasteboard box, remained unclaimed in a Long Island undertaking parlor. Unquote. But one person who Star Faithful's tragic life did resonate with was novelist John O'Hara. He based his second novel on her life and death in the form of fictional character Gloria Wandrus. The title, Butterfield 8, refers to telephone exchanges of the past that use names to represent numbers. The Butterfield 8 exchange served the wealthy neighborhood of Manhattan's Upper East Side. The B and U in Butterfield stood for the letters 2 and 8, making the first three numbers 288. In the book, Gloria Wandrus is a heavy-drinking call girl who was molested at the age of 13 by her mother's boyfriend. It's possible that the script was changed, making Gloria a model instead of a call girl, on the insistence of Elizabeth Taylor. Schechter writes that Taylor balked at playing a character she regarded as a, quote, sick nymphomaniac. Gloria, like Star, is portrayed as trying to escape a past of trauma and abuse and finds little lover joy in her life outside of a bottle. In the book, spoiler alert, Gloria is killed by falling and being swept under the paddle wheel of a boat. The author of Butterfield 8 actually knew Star Faithful, having seen her in some of New York's speakeasies in the 1930s, although he didn't know her well. He became fascinated with her case and followed the story as it was being reported at the time. He also talked to investigators who were working on the case. Later, he was able to get his hands on Star Faithful's diary. It was in O'Hara's possession for some time, and he used it as research material for his novel. Speaking of books, the best account of Star Faithful's life and mystery of her death is said to be The Passing of Star Faithful, written by crime historian Jonathan Goodman. Published in 1990, Goodman used the original police files for his research, as well as what was left of her diary. It won the 1990 Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger Award for nonfiction. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you haven't listened to this month's bonus episode with my interview with author Harold Schechter, it was released last week. We talk about his new book, Rip from the Headlines, the shocking true stories behind the movie's most memorable crimes. 
If you want to find a great list of movies that were inspired by true crime cases, this is your go-to read. I was only able to cover a few cases this month, but he's got a whole index of classic and modern movies with crime cases as their central themes in his book. Some of these are cases I've covered on Once Upon a Crime, like Badlands, based on the Charles Starkweather, Carol Fugate case, Alpha Dog, based on the Jesse James Hollywood case, and so many more. Check the show notes for a link to his webpage where you'll find information as well as a link to purchase Rip from the Headlines and all of Harold Schechter's other books. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. We're starting a whole new series next week, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Until then, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.